We are in the middle of a series that I've been so excited about. We're walking through uh, this idea about real mature. We've been having a conversation about how do I know that I'm growing in my walk with the Lord? How do I know that I'm moving towards Jesus? How do I know that, that you know, maybe I, I made a decision or I've been checking out the church for a while and I feel like, okay, there's something happening here, but I keep hearing this talk about growing in the Lord and becoming more mature. And how do I know if I'm moving that way? Or what if I'm trying to move that way and I've been stuck for a while? And if I look back at the last season of my life, I feel like, yeah, you know, I kind of hit a level and I was comfortable at that level. And I know there's greater things come on now. I know there's deeper places, but I don't really have a pathway to get there. I'm not really sure what my plan is to get there and how we're going to get there. And we open the conversation talking about fasting and talking about creating space in our life to receive whatever God calls us to do. And so many of us are fasting right now. Come on now, if you're hungry, let me hear an amen. (laughs) if it's been a long time since you had a steak, come on now. All right. (laughs) I'm so excited to come and and worship with you guys next Sunday night too and kind of have that as the crescendo and break the fast after that. And that'll be just an awesome deal. And so really, really excited about that piece. Um, So we had that conversation about just preparing ourselves to hear from God. And then we launched into this series. And the first part of the conversation we had in growing and maturing with God was around the idea of spiritual intimacy, And we talked about wherever you're at on your journey with Jesus, the first step is realizing that it's personal and realizing that what Jesus invites every person he interacts with to do is to simply follow him. And there's this incredible tension as you read the scriptures and realize that the invitation is come and follow me, not come and figure it all out, not first take care of all your mess and then you can follow me, not deal with all of the stuff that's creating tension between you and me. It's simply wherever you're at in this moment, you have permission, come on this journey with me, follow me. And we walked into this tension that oftentimes, People that follow Jesus, they don't start at 100% confidence in Jesus. They're not even 100% confidence in what they believe. But we talked about this tension that sometimes, come on now, you have to make big decisions before you're at 100%. Were you 100% before you had that kid? Were you 100% even at the altar? Maybe 99.99 has been my running theory, but you didn't get up there and say, I take you to be my 99.99% wife, you went all in. And Jesus' invitation is, yeah, you might have some questions. Yeah, there may be some tension. You're completely, not totally resolved, but you're walking this direction. Why don't you take a leap of faith and come and follow me? And if you don't know that it's personal and an invitation, then none of the other things that we're gonna talk about really make a lot of sense. But spiritual intimacy was the beginning of that. It was an ability and permission to know Jesus personally and simply respond to the call to follow him. Then last week, we dove deep into this idea of biblical knowledge. And we walked into this tension and this conversation that that you can't really follow God if you don't know what he's like. And he's revealed what he's like in the scriptures. And we walked into this tension of how do I know if I'm actually following Jesus or not? It's because I know who he is and I know what he's like because he's revealed himself in his word. And we landed on this really scary tension of, A half-truth can ruin your life. And you know people who, because of half-truths and believing things that weren't fully true, have literally derailed, side-railed, and catastrophe has hit their life. And so Jesus invites us into an understanding and the knowledge of truth. And God is the source of truth. And he talked to us through his word about how we can know what is true. And so biblical knowledge became a critical component to maturing. So you're on this journey with Jesus and wherever you're at, the permission is to take the next step and follow and become more like him. And part of that is understanding who he is and what he's like and what's true and what isn't true so we don't get lost and confused along the journey. And then the next piece is simply this. Uh, We're calling it holy obedience. Because what good is it if you know what to do and you don't do it? You know lots of people. You've been in conversations with someone and they're talking about a catastrophe that they've experienced in their life and you're saying, well, how how come you did that? And their their comment is, well, I knew not to do it, but I did it. Or I knew I should have done it and I didn't do it. And the tension isn't what you know, the tension is will you obey what you know? Will you actually do what you know so that your walk with Jesus can grow? Oh, preach pastor, (laughs) right? Will you do what you know? that on your journey with Jesus, you'll grow. 
And so holy obedience becomes this opportunity to not just, come on, be invited to take a step and look and live and, and know Jesus, not just to know what is true and, and what isn't true and to have discernment and ability to say, this is the lane, I can follow in this lane, but it's actually the willingness to take the steps and follow Jesus. What's incredible about that is our story, the story of followers and believers in Jesus is connected through generations with people who participated in the story of Jesus and obeyed. And when you obey Jesus, when you take steps and follow Jesus, you become part of the larger, greater story of what God's doing in all of the earth. You get to partner with the incredible things that God is doing and, and you get to be part of the bigger story here on earth of what God is doing. This became real for me uh, some years back. I have this unique thing where I'm, you know, a, a, a pastor. And so I, I do this Jesus thing a lot. And, uh, but I don't do it because I'm a pastor. I'm just a pastor because I do it a lot. And so early on in my journey with Jesus, after graduating for Bible college, I got offered this incredible job to come and be an intern and work for free. Yeah, it was amazing, right? I had all this school debt and I was like, that's the thing I should do with my life. I'll go and work for free. And so I went and I said, yes, and I did it. And I quit my high paying job at the time. And I went and lived in a stranger's basement. And I said, I will work for free because I want to do this thing God's called me to do, and I'm an intern. And I don't know if you know anything about interns, but generally, the projects that fall all the way down to the floor that no one wants to do, someone says, hey, call the intern. And so one of those projects was, was a project that looked a little bit like this. We had a, another uh, church that was doing some uh, discipleship curriculum stuff in our community, and they said, hey, do you have someone who could come over, because we have to hear different speakers as part of our thing, who could come over and teach? and just share a message with our group. And so that went through every line of people who had looked at their schedules and said, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. Hey, this is a great opportunity for the intern to go over and speak. I said, okay, I guess I'll do that. I'm not pro, but you know, I play one on TV. And so, so I go. Now, I don't have a lot of messages in the bag yet, right? In the hopper, I haven't preached very much. I've done a few Sunday school classes, and I've spoken at one or two youth groups, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty much figuring it out. So I go to my, one of my favorite stories in the scripture, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and he, uh, 1 Kings 18 and 19, after this incredible victory, fear overwhelms him, and he flees, and he feels like God's abandoned him, and he's experienced greater highs than anyone that you could imagine feeling and experiencing, seeing the hand of God move, and how quickly he pivots to fear and discouragement and disappointment, and, uh, and, and at the end of that story, he's in a cave, and this isn't the story I'm preaching today, so I won't get too lost in there, but uh, at the end of the story, he's in a cave, and these, and these epic moments go by. There's a earthquake and there's a wind and there's fire and he's looking for God's hand and God's not in any of those things that happen. And then if you're familiar with the story, he hears a whisper and God's in the whisper. And I'm teaching this story to this group of young adults and, and I'm communicating this thing that God's kind of revealed to me through the scripture. And, and it's just this simple truth that the power of a whisper is this, that in order to hear a whisper, I have to get and sometimes when we're afraid and when we're wondering where the power of God is, he's whispering because he wants us to know that he's near. And so I'm teaching and that's all I got. That's my moment. And then I leave. That's it. Years go by. I'm at a conference somewhere and this guy comes up to me. I don't even recognize him. He grabs me by the shoulders and he's like, it's you. And I'm like, oh no. Where was I? Did I cut someone off in traffic? Like, I'm I was driving for a youth event. Was one of my kids out of control? Like, what, you know, what did I do? Did I, you know, at Walmart, did I, was I impatient? Did I say something? What did I do? And he goes, no. He goes, you probably don't even realize who I am. And I was like, good call, bro. And <laughs> he goes, well, I'm pastoring a church down in Arizona. And I go, okay. And he goes, listen, I was, I was at a church in Spokane. And I was doing a program learning about 
being a pastor and I wasn't sure where I was going to do with my life and I had questions and you shared this message about God being in the whisper and that sometimes when I'm afraid he comes close and it gave me the courage and I went on and this guy's got a testimony and a story and he's been preaching and his family's preaching and all these things are happening and I had no clue. Yeah, I can't even, I still don't fully remember his name. But I was obedient. The responsibility trickled down and someone had to pick it up. And I said, okay, I'll go and I'll tell the only story that I think I know could preach. And God used that and became part of someone else's greater story. And there's people going to church in Arizona. Why? Because I was just obedient. I didn't want to do that. Come on, it's a lame job when you're an intern. Go to a place with people you don't know and talking to them and leave. And like, I didn't want to do any of that. I was 22. I want to do cool things like shovel the snow. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that was a other one of my two responsibilities. Um, so we have this tension, recognizing that when we obey, sometimes we don't know the impact of, of who we are influencing. One of my pastors growing up used to say this all the time, and it just, it resonated with me, and I locked it into my heart, and I hope it locks into your heart. And it was a very simple truth, but it was just this. You might be the only Jesus someone ever encounters in their whole life. Jesus living in you might be the only Jesus someone ever encounters in their whole life. They may not turn on Christian radio. I'll modernize it, because back then, we, they may not like the same things on Facebook. <laughs> I think he said something about they may not listen to a blue-haired lady on TV, and I'm not sure if that means something to you. <laughs> I just remember that. But he said they may not do any of those things, but they may sit next to you at school or work in the same building as you or check out your groceries or mow their lawns right next to you. And you may be the only Jesus they see and the only Jesus they know. And because you're the only Jesus you know, you're part of God's story in their life how he's reached out to them. They're in your circle by divine appointment. You may not realize this, but you might be the crazy old aunt that someone's talking about in three generations saying, I'm a believer because my crazy aunt used to pray at all of the events. We get together for Christmas and we'd want to eat. And they'd say, we can't eat yet. We haven't given thanks for the meal. And we're like, oh. And then one day my mom got saved and she needed help and she called my aunt. And I don't even remember her name, but there was a crazy aunt in my family. And because of that, I'm serving Jesus today. You don't know. You might be part of someone's story, a link in the chain that you don't even realize the power and the influence that you have in the kingdom and the way you live and your holy obedience may be, come on now, part of the story of what God's doing in the earth today. That's why in 1 John, John says, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, says, we know that we've come to know him, talking about Jesus, if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't, do what he commands, is a liar. And you know that. Come on now, you've been around some people who are like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And you're like, yeah. I saw where you were, what you did. I got on the computer after you. I saw where your browsing history was. Come on now. I saw what you did, who you are. I looked at your life. And John says, the one who says, I know him, but, but it doesn't want to do what he commands, that guy's a liar. And the truth isn't in him. Verse five, but if anyone obeys his word, holy obedience, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. The story of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus is wherever you're at, regardless of what you're into, where you've been, and, and wherever your story has been up until this point, you're invited to join. And that invitation as you walk with him, you become more and more like him. You get to know him and you get to trust him and you go, wow, thank you so much for caring so much about me that you don't want me to fall off this cliff. So I'm gonna walk where you walk. John says, that's how you know someone's following Jesus. That's how you know who they are. That's how you know their story. Some of you are feeling tension. You're like, Pastor Mike, sounds pretty performance issues. Like, why do I have to perform? Come on now. I'm not trying to perform. I just want to tell you, Jesus was very concerned that he wasn't just speaking to the wind. He didn't just talk to hear himself speak. He said, I'm giving you information so that you have the information and you can change and model your life and behavior to this information. Here's how I know it's true. It's what he said. 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. You know this story. He gives an illustration near the end of the greatest sermon ever preached. And he goes, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, listen to this, and puts them into practice. We never harp on that. Jesus says, hey, if you hear these words of mine, go ahead and do it. Actually do the thing I'm advising you and counseling you and teaching you and generating life for you. You should probably do those things. He goes, that's the wise man who built his house on the rock. Come on, you know this story. You know the song at least, right? The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it didn't fall because he had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. You see, we sing the song, and we say the wise man built his house upon the rock, or the foolish man built his house. But we don't say, by doing the thing that Jesus commanded. Like, we cut that line out of the song. And so we go, oh, yeah, that's totally practical and pragmatic. Build your house on a strong foundation. I got you, Jesus. He's like, here's what the foundation actually is. It's not just hearing. Come on now, what's the good of knowing what to do and you don't want to do it? He's saying, if you do it, it will strengthen your foundation. And by the same token, disobedience will weaken your foundation. Disobedience will weaken your foundation. And Jesus is trying to communicate and trying to teach us that, hey, if you don't obey, if you don't hear, you're going to experience the storms of life and the things that you care about are going to come crashing down. Disobedience will weaken your foundation. And you know this, you've experienced this, and you know people who have experienced this. And they said, well, hey, everything was going great. I was living high off the hog. And then suddenly a storm hit, 2008 hit, and the economy went south, and things went crazy, and I had a job issue, and, and she found out she was pregnant, and something happened. And suddenly the foundation of my life comes crashing down. And I'm confused, and I'm hurt, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, why, why God, why God, why God? And you're like, well, I was living in disobedience. And then the things that were going good for me when I hit some tension weren't going good for me anymore. And now it really is tough. And Jesus is saying, listen, obedience is what strengthens your foundation because storms are going to come to everybody. And seasons are going to come to everybody. But by putting my words into practice, you will be prepared for whatever storms come. Here's our problem when it comes to obedience. And I heard a pastor say it this way, so I'm going to quote him. He says this, he says, we shed the sins we don't like, but we hold on to the two or three we kind of like. We make a decision to follow Jesus, and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 these ones, I don't like these sins anyway, so I'm going to go ahead and stop doing those things, and I'm going to start following Jesus. But there's two or three things I really like those ones. And so me and Jesus are going to kind of like bro punch over those and be like, yeah, you know, with a wink. I know that's not what's best for me, but you love me anyway, so I'm forgiven. So I'm just going to kind of keep a hold of these things, come on now, that I kind of like, and they're going to have territory in my heart and in my life. And then you're asking me why when the storm comes did the foundation of my life crumble? Or you're asking me, hey, I'm trying to mature. I'm trying to grow. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to get further in my life. And we can't even touch those things. Come on now, that you're holding on to. You don't want to be honest about those things with me. You'll be honest with Jesus, but you bro punch him and say, it's cool. And you're like, hey, I'm living in this tension and I'm wondering why I'm not growing. So here's the tension. We try to rationalize things that we want to keep a hold of. We just try to rationalize them. God's blessing me even though I'm holding on to these things, so it's probably cool. He must really be good with it. Even though my biblical knowledge says that he's not, he must be because, you know, I'm not dead. I don't have leprosy. So he must be cool with the sin that I'm holding on to. And we try to rationalize it. We try to justify it. And so we try to live in two worlds and we wonder why we can't move further in our relationship with Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to go to Luke chapter 18 and I'm going to just walk through a story of Jesus interacting with someone who's really dealing with this tension. And you've probably heard the story before if you've been in church for a long time. It's a powerful story and it shows up all over the place in scripture. And as a matter of fact, scripture identifies the person that Jesus interacts with as a rich young ruler. 
This interaction is so powerful, so important, that three of the four gospel accounts actually record this story. They're all very concerned. There's something impactful and powerful. A moment happens here, and they want to make sure that we all hear this story. What's important to realize is that this rich young ruler, excuse me, is a person. This isn't a metaphor, a story. This isn't a parable. This is an interaction Jesus has with a human being. Now, I love the fact that the scripture identifies him as a rich young ruler. The passage we're in is just going to say a certain ruler, but through all three passages, you get the, the context. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. What are the things that our world looks at for success, to measure success? Wealth, influence, health, looks, youth, anything you want to put in there. He's hit the trifecta. This guy is crushing it at a young age. He has become wealthy and influential. He has all of the things that you would say people would probably go, yeah, something's going right with him. He's got his act together. If nothing else, God's at least given him favor. Seems like this is someone that might even be someone you might look up to. What's interesting is I tried to figure out what is he a ruler of? And most likely, he was highly influential and whatever his local religious circle is, would have been his local synagogue or some position like that. He probably wasn't a ruler um, in terms of governmental structure because Rome was in control and that would have been a weird like alignment. He's obviously Jewish by the interaction. So he's probably a leader influential in the church. So this guy's young. He's running the show at a church. He's good looking. He's got all his hair. He's probably tall and sings well. Come on now. <laughs> All the things, right? His bank account is stacked. He's got what on the outside looks like he's got his stuff together. And so he interacts with Jesus. And he has this incredible moment with him. And it says a certain, I'm in Luke 18, beginning of verse 18. It says a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There is so much in that sentence. There is so much in that sentence that we can unpack. First of all, he says, good teacher. He clearly hasn't acknowledged, he didn't say Messiah, Lord. He says, okay, you have a big following. I too have influence and wealth and my youth. Let me ask you a question, you with a big following, you teacher. You see the line that he puts into his relationship with Jesus there. But then I want you to catch this. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a great question to ask Jesus. This is the one you should ask. Oftentimes I think about like, if I had one question I could get Jesus on the record with, what would I ask? Because there's a lot of things I'd like to get him on the record with. There's all kinds of areas where I'm like, wouldn't it just be easier if you were on the record clearly on this and I have to pull some things out of your word and I have to understand Greek and context. I have to understand a culture that was two to 4,000 years ago and what life was like then before I could kind of grasp and grow. Like if I could just get you on the record on whatever this particular topic, Jesus, that would be awesome. You've been in the room with someone where they waited a long time to ask somebody a question, and then when they asked the question, you thought, well, that wasn't a very good question. You could have found that answer out 10 seconds on Google, or like you have this person in the room, and it's like you wasted your chance to ask them a really good question. I did that before. I waited through this whole line uh, to get a, uh, a book autograph from an author, and then they're like, oh, you can ask them one question. I was like, I didn't know I can ask them a question. Uh, 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 how's your day going? Like, I was like, right, I didn't know what to do. I missed my shot to ask a good question. This guy doesn't blow a shot. This is a good question. He doesn't have an agenda. He's not like a, uh, some of the times we see Jesus interacting with these religious leaders who, who are trying to entrap him, ensnare him, trick him. They have a political agenda. They have an agenda to overthrow him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to manipulate him. None of those things is the case. This is relatively a good dude. He's living a good life. He's living the high life, but he's living a good life. And he sees this teacher who's become immensely popular, who's teaching about heaven and hell. And he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All those things are good questions, but as I studied this this week, you know what it kept jumping out at me? What must I do? What must I do? I got my stuff together. My 401k is all locked in, right? My, uh, my family's all sharp. My, my car's paid off. I'm just, you know, whatever the things. He's like, I got my checklist. I'm on pace. Things are good. I'm young. I'm wealthy. I have influence. People listen to me. I'm good at knocking things off the list. Jesus, 
any extra things I need to lock off the list because the important question is, how do I get to heaven? Like, I want my afterlife to be as good as my current life. And so I want to just buy a little fire insurance and make sure that when I die, it's not too hot. Come on now. What do you need from me? What do you think I need in order to make sure that, you know, we're cool? The fact that he says, what do I need to do just reminds me I need control. I want to know how to leverage my resources to get what I want from Jesus. That's in there. Jesus sniffs this out, this, this loaded question out. And he goes, hey, verse 19, why do you call me good? Basically, he's saying, you didn't say Savior. You didn't say Messiah. You said good teacher. Why are you calling me good? What is your measuring stick for good? He goes, no one is good except God alone. So are you calling me truly good? Are you actually recognizing that I'm God? So he's leveraging the conversation a little bit there, which is brilliant. Then he goes on. He says, verse 20, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony and honor your father and mother. That's five. Is that all the commandments? No. What's interesting, I spent a lot of time trying to just figure out, why did he pick these ones? Right? There's other commandments he didn't put in there, idol worship, things like that, right? Sabbath. He didn't go to there. He went to these five commandments. He's, remember, he's having a personal interaction with a real person. The guy's rich. He's young. He's in charge. Probably because of who Jesus is, I'm just going to make a little assertion here. He probably is reading this guy's mail a little bit. You ask me what's good. If you know that you need to be good, how are you doing honoring the things God's called you to do? He says, how are you doing with these things? Jesus says, you're not asking me a savior of the world, but as a wise teacher, let me just do a checklist with you. Let me rattle off a few of the commandments and see how you're holding up. Adultery, murder, stealing. Remember, Jesus was always about heart level obedience, not just physical obedience. It was always about, hey, if you've committed adultery in your heart, you've done it already. If you committed murder in, your, in the heart, you have the same distance between you and God because your heart is now separated from God as if you actually did the behavior. Now, the consequences here on earth may be different, but you have the same distance in your heart and in your life because you have allowed that into your heart. You got to reconcile and deal with that. He's consistently. So he rattles off two or three things that are about the heart. Then he says false testimony and lie. I think verse 21 is going to address this, so we'll get there in a second. Then he says, honor your mom and dad. He's young. He's rich. He's in charge. He can't imagine there's been some tension with mom and dad. Honoring mom and dad. Verse 21, look at his response. All these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know any young children who have perfectly honored their mother and father their whole life. I didn't make it. I'm sure you didn't make it. My kids haven't made it. I'm sure your kids haven't made it. That's just not happening, right? So he just broke the lie one that we were just talking about. <laughs> There's no way he did that. You're gonna tell me that this rich young ruler hasn't at any point in his heart perhaps struggled with the idea of adultery or with uh, jealousy that led to murderous intent in his heart? None of those things were ever there, but he's like, he's like listen, my rap sheet is cool. I've been doing those things since I was a kid. You could see pride swelling a little bit here. And Jesus is looking at him and he goes, okay, let's get real specific to your heart then. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, okay, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Woo! The tension of this verse, Jesus Jesus, seriously, I can't sell everything I have, Jesus. I need some things. It's snowing out. I'm going to need some shelter. I'm fasting, but I still need vegetables and water. They're not just passing those out. Come on now. I need a few things. How can you ask him to sell everything he had? And people, listen, I want you to hear this. Sometimes people get hung up on this verse because they don't understand and they forget that Jesus is having a real interaction with a real person. And he's dealing with this person's heart. This is not a blanket commandment for all of God's people throughout time that everything you have, you should sell and give to the poor, have nothing, and then follow Jesus with nothing. That's not the command. He recognizes in this person's life, in this person's heart, there has now become a tension in them, a, a, a pull or a tug between Jesus and something in their heart. And he calls it out. He says, it's your stuff. 
So if you want to move along this relational journey with me and follow me, your next step towards maturity is there is something in your heart that's between you and me. Deal with that. And he calls it out. For you, it's your stuff. Holy obedience is about making my priorities God's priorities and trusting that I am God's priority, that he cares for me. It's interesting. I was thinking about this a lot this week, and I was like, you know what? It's kind of like gravity. And this is an interesting thing. You could stay with me. And listen, I went to Bible college, and so if my gravity illustration is off, don't crush me afterwards. But as I understand gravity, okay? So I'm not a scientist, and if you're Googling this online, you know, have mercy on me. But I'm not a scientist, but as I understand gravity, what gravity basically is, is one smaller object being drawn to a larger object, and that all smaller objects are drawn to larger objects. And because we're on the earth and the earth is big, we're all drawn and stuck. Gravity is pulling us to the largest object. That's why when the earth spins around, we don't go ping and shoot off the earth. We are pulled by gravity to whatever is the largest object. So Jesus looks into this man's heart and says, you have a pull, a tug in you into something that is larger in your heart than me. For you, it's your stuff. So the tension, the gravity, the pull, you're trying to move in a direction towards me. You're asking me what that is, but something in your heart has a larger space. It's untouchable for me. You won't surrender it. You won't give it up. And because of that, come on now, you're fighting gravity. You're trying to walk towards me, but you don't want to let go of this thing that's large and in charge in your life. And gravity is pulling you away from me. And Jesus says, that's the thing. This isn't a story about every Christian or every follower of Jesus should dump all their stuff and give it to the poor and then just live impoverished. That's certainly not what he's talking about here. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, there's all kinds of places where Jesus talks about how it's good to use the resources and the things he's given you for the kingdom of God. But he certainly understands that there's a tension in this person's heart. And if it's a tension in your heart, you better listen up because he's clear that this is a thing that can divide your heart. So gravity is tugging him away. And verse 23 says, <clears throat> when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. He had something else that was bigger in his life than Jesus. You see, holy obedience isn't figuring out the checklist of commands. It's not honoring every commandment perfectly. As a matter of fact, Jesus was clear that there's too many rules. He says, you're getting all these rules are tying you up. They got you bound instead of setting you free. Let me break down the rules for you. If you want to know what all the law and all the prophets' commandments hang on, then just do these two things well. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're doing those two things, it fulfills the whole commandment of the law. Jesus says, that's the, that's, he, don't overcomplicate the rules. But he says, if you want to follow me, you really want to follow me, I'm going to need access to your whole heart. If you want to be someone who's obeying me, I'm going to need access because you can't love me with your whole heart and have something else that's so large that you're constantly drawn back to it. You're going to have to let that go. Holy obedience is about identifying what's in my heart that's drawing me away from Jesus and being willing to let that thing go. Being willing to let that thing go. <laughs> I was thinking about how we never see this guy again in Scripture. That's the end of his story and his interaction with Jesus. One version says he actually went away sad, not just became very sad. He left dejected and sad. This is a guy with power, influence, relationships, relational leverage. He, he, his part of the story of partnering with Jesus ends right here. Why? Because his stuff was in his heart in a higher place than it needed to be. Jesus looked at him, verse 24, and said, <laughs> how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now listen, there's all kinds of teaching about this passage because it makes no sense as it's written right now. Um, <laughs> and so you got to understand about gates and getting camels through gates and loaded camels through that. Or you can just literally take the metaphor, a camel on the eye of needles, like impossible. It wasn't impossible. It was difficult. And essentially what Jesus is saying is if something else is sitting on the top of your heart, on the throne of your heart, on the, on the ruling there, and oftentimes it's going to be your stuff. But if that stuff is sitting on the top of your heart, it's going to be really hard for you, come on now, to not be more drawn to that than you are to me. He's like, that's the tension. 
Not impossible, but it's going to be very, very difficult to do that. He's saying, I'm looking for people who are ready to go all in. You know, I, I'm not a gambler, um, but I play one on TV. No, um, I'm not a gambler, but I got some gamblers in my family. I got some gamblers in my family. And because I have some gamblers in my family, I, I know some of the tension between someone who's gambling out of some entertainment money and someone who's gambling with all they have. There's a different tension when it's your last 20 bucks versus your first 20 bucks, right? There's a different tension when it's, I don't know if we're gonna be able to eat if I don't hit, or I don't know, you know, if I'm gonna be able to get my Starbucks on the way home. There's a different tension there. And there's an emotional feeling that we have when we know it's all we have. Whatever it is, whenever all we have is at risk, and maybe you've been in a situation where you're like, this is all I have and I may, it may be at risk. And I'm trying to introduce this tension to you in the best way I can figure out how to do it. And I just want you to understand this tension. Jesus is comfortable inviting us to put all our chips on the table and to deal with that. And most of us are comfortable, come on now, gambling with the 20 that we know we can lose. Most of us are comfortable in our walk with Jesus saying, I trust you up to this point because I can handle if that's a loss. And Jesus is saying, ah, that's, that's not following me. That's not gonna bring maturity in you. I'm only comfortable following you, God, as far as I can afford to take the shot. And Jesus says, mm, that's not how this works. It's gonna be hard. The more you have, the harder it's gonna be to trust me, but trust me and trust me is what you need to do. And then verse 26, those who heard this ask, um, who then can be saved? Like, whoa, that was brutal, Jesus. You gotta remember in these guys' eyes, Jesus is dealing with a rock star, young, stud, probably in the church, a leader, wealthy. Like, man, this guy's awesome. He's probably got a cool podcast that everybody's listening to. And come on now. He's writing the blog that everyone's paying attention to. Like, this guy's sharp. Everybody likes this guy. He's not a hater. Like they're dealing with all kinds of haters. This is not a hater, right? This is one of the rock stars. And they look around, they're like, um, if he can't get in, how are we going to get in? If, if your answer to him is that's not enough, how are we going to do it? This doesn't make sense at all. By their standards, this is a good dude who's got all the right boxes checked. Jesus is like, I'm not trying to check boxes. I'm, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. Jesus replies, well, what's impossible with men is possible with God. This isn't gonna be something that you just do because it makes sense and it's easy. It's gonna be something you do because you trust God and you know God and God gives you the strength and the power to do it. You're not gonna be able to give your heart on your own and in your own flesh. If you could, you just save yourself. But God's gonna come and meet you in that need and bring power and authority and healing and restoration where you need it. It's possible with God. Then Peter pipes in. <laughs> I love this. We left all we had to follow you. He like, like dawns on him. Ding. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation, Peter. <laughs> right? <laughs> this whole interaction happens and Peter's like, yes, we did that. That's the thing we did. We left all we had and we followed you. I can imagine Jesus smiling. He's like, all right, you got it. Welcome to the conversation. And here's the thing. Jesus is making that same offer to us every day that he's making to Peter when Peter's throwing his nets down. He's saying, hey, will you come and follow me? The same offer he's making to Matthew at the tax collector's table we talked about who had a career and a job, but it was wicked and it was pulling and deceitful and pulling him away from a relationship with God. He's saying, hey, I don't care where you're at in this moment. The same invitation is come and follow me. Peter's like, that's the invitation that I followed. And so that's what holy obedience looks like. And my question is just, is there a tension in your life as I'm talking about this that now deserves your attention? Is there a tension that deserves your attention? As I'm having this conversation with you about holy obedience being places in our heart that maybe we're holding on to, that we're holding back from, that are drawing us to them over and over again instead of drawing us into a relationship with Jesus, is there a tension that maybe deserves your attention? What's creating that tension? Is it because the more you walk with Jesus and get to know Jesus, the more aware you are of how this thing in your heart and in your life isn't in the right position? 
It's moved too high, too far, too up the food chain. If I were to ask you your values and say, what do you care about? You'd say, well, you know, first God, then my wife, and then my kids, and then my extended family, and then my friends, and then my church, and then my job, and then my, like, you know, you might give me whatever your thing is, and I might say, okay, so tell me how that's working it out in your life. How much time are you spending with the things at the top of your list? And you're like, well, how much of your resources go into the things at the top of your list? And you're like, ah, and you're trying to figure that out, and you're living in that tension, because those are the things that are the biggest things in your heart, where your time, your talents, your wealth, your resources go into. The things that you say to Jesus, I'm in, but I'm still holding on to this. I'm in, but I'm, I'm still processing my anger. I'm in, but I, I don't want to forgive yet. I'm in, but you don't understand what, how important this is to me. I'm in, but this is really fun, and I like doing this. I'm in, but whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, ah, you got to leave that behind and come and follow me. You gotta be willing to trust me in that. Verse 29, I love this. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I think you should just listen. He goes, I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail. This is so beautiful. Will fail to receive many times as much. Listen to this. In this age, in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna rip you off. I'm not gonna rip you off. Your value systems might change and what you look at as a success might change. And so it may be different than the values that, that you had before you came in, but you can trust me that if you follow me, I have no intention of ripping you off. And not only that, the influence and the power that is gifted to you as an impartation of partnering with me is gonna have widespread influence, not just in this age, but in the age to come. We're here in the age to come. We're here in the future of their conversations because Peter was willing to listen and follow and walk because Paul got knocked off his donkey and said, I trust you, God, and went from church to church and town to town, even though they threw rocks at him and beat him. We're here today, part of God's story. And then we get to partner and be part of God's story. And the next generation comes and they're here because we gave, we sacrificed, we lived that way. See, your obedience is part of a bigger story. Like, why is that so important? Well, it's because you're part of a bigger story. You don't realize how much influence you have. You don't realize, church, how important you are. You, you undermine the influence that God has when he's in your heart and your life sitting in, his, in the right spot and the gravitational pull that you have when you make God bigger than anything else. People go, wow, what is that? I feel the, I feel the pull, man, and it's coming towards me. What is that? You're kind towards me. You're loving towards me. I've been a jerk to you, and you forgave me. I didn't even ask for forgiveness, but you have every reason to be mad at me. What is that? And the gravitational pull of that is real. Your obedience is part of a bigger story. I'm going to tell you one more story, and then we're going to be done. About a guy you maybe never heard of named Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a, uh, back in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, he was a Sunday school teacher. And he had the worst assignment in Sunday school, teenage boys. Come on now. That's the assignment you give to the person you don't like. <laughs> to the intern. I had that job. He had teenage boys, and it wasn't going well. These kids were rowdy. They were knuckleheads. They were not listening. They were uh, all of the things that none of the teenage boys in this room are, right? They were all of those things. And so... Edward Kimball was like, I need a new strategy. I don't really want to do this, but I feel like God wants me to reach these kids. So I'm going to go try to talk to them individually. He didn't want to do it, but he felt like God wanted him to do it. So he goes to this one teenage boy, has a job. He works at a shoe store. And he goes to this shoe store. And this is a particularly rough kid. This is a kid that he's had a hard time with. And he's like, I'm going to start with this kid. I'm just going to go to the place where he works instead of him coming to the church because he doesn't want to be there when he comes anyways and he's grumpy. I'm going to go to another place, I guess, where he doesn't want to be at work. But at least he's there and I'll go to his terms. So he shows up, and he has a conversation with him. He says, I know you're having a hard time in Sunday school, and, and every time you come, it's tense, and you don't want to be there. And I just want you to know I care about you. I care enough about you to come see how you're doing. And, uh, and the guy goes, well, I don't know. I don't believe any of that stuff anyways. He goes, what don't you believe? And they, they have a conversation, and it leads to a conversation about who Jesus is, and he introduces them to Jesus, and he gives his heart to the Lord. And the kid's name is D.L. Moody. Now, if you've been in Christian circles for a while, you know there's colleges named after D.L. Moody. Come on now, there's theology teaching centers that D.L. Moody was a part of. D.L. Moody goes on to be an incredible evangelist leading thousands of people to the Lord on two continents through the Civil War uh, and literally has massive, incredible 
impact. And one of the people that he leads to Christ uh, is a guy that's named J. Wilbur Chapman. And J. Wilbur Chapman comes to one of D.L. Moody's evangelistic meetings and gives his heart to Jesus and says, I'm going to do the thing that D.L. Moody does. And he uh, uh, duplicates his ministry in different places. And he has a long run of reaching thousands of people, Chapman does. And as he gets to the end of his run, he's going to take the presidency of a Bible college. So he needs someone to take over his ministry. And this young guy who was a very popular guy had, uh, had gotten saved in one of his ministry meetings. And he was a professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday goes on to be one of the most well-known, prolific gospel preachers of his era. And uh, he starts really tent revival meetings that are just exploding and doing incredibly well. And one of the guys that gets saved in Billy Sunday's ministry is a guy named Mordecai Ham. Now, Mordecai Ham uh, is, uh, is like called to more rural areas. And Billy Sunday's going to more city areas. And he goes to some rural areas in South Carolina and, and uh, sets up tents. And he's doing these revival meetings. And he's telling people about Jesus. And one night, these three teenage boys decide, well, there's nothing happening in our little town. Let's go check out these crazies in the tent revival. And they show up at the tent revival and they open the curtain and it's packed to the gills in there. And they go, oh, this is lame. We don't want to go in here. And they decide they're going to leave. But an usher sees them poke their heads in and walks out and grabs them and says, hey, listen, we really want you to be here. Oh, there's no space and this is lame and we don't want to do this. Listen, I'll make space for you if you guys will stay. Do you want to stay? Well, we got nothing else to do. It's a small town. We'll check it out. And he makes space for them. And they sit down and one of those three boys is named Billy Graham. And Billy Graham goes on to start the crusade ministry that he has, the teaching ministry he has. And in 2008, it's like a Guinness Book of World Records type thing. They, they figured out that through his ministry, radio, traveling, TV, video, he has personally spoken words of the gospel that have been heard by 2.2 billion sets of ears. Billy Graham, 2008. And at first, I was pr profoundly impacted by the truth of a, of a Sunday school teacher willing to pursue a relationship with a kid who's a knothead and just being kind towards them. But the more time I spent with this story, the more impacted I was by an usher who was sitting at a door who saw someone's head poke in and said, you know what? We want you to be here. And so we'll make space for you. And this incredible chain of events of the power of God's story, because person after person, their story different, unique, but God the same, interacting with them and giving opportunity for them to just hear about the incredible love of God and the invitation of Jesus to follow wherever you are. Holy obedience. Holy obedience invites you into the power of God's story. He can move in you and through you to impact life after life. And you may, you may meet somebody in some place and sometime, maybe on the other side of heaven, who says, you don't realize this. But you, you wrote a check when we came and, you know, we were doing missionary work and I, didn't, I was a kid and my mom was doing it and they were dragging me and, and that money that went to that thing provided for the place that I was gonna be when I heard the truth and you don't realize the impact and the resource and what it did. You just don't know. And so holy obedience lets us enter into the narrative, the story, and the power of what God's doing. And would you stand with me? And I'm taking us to the point of no return here, so I'm going to land the plane. But I just, I just want you to understand the simple truth that holy obedience is just hearing the word of God and trusting that he wants what's best for you. It's hearing the word of God and trusting that he wants what's best for you. And it's trusting that in his plan that there's hope in a future for you. And the rich young ruler missed this truth. He thought he had something that was best for him, but there was something better available for him. He could have walked into the story of Jesus. He could have walked into the narrative of history and been a part of where we all are today. So I'm wondering, what are the areas where you're saying, Jesus, you don't have permission to go there? What is the areas where you say, God, I love you with all my heart except this? I put you first in my life except here. Maybe it's how you're living right now. Maybe it's something as intimate and tender as sexual sin. And maybe it's a relationship that you're in that you know you shouldn't be in. Maybe it's your financial world and you're saying, Jesus, you just don't have permission. Maybe it's food. We're fasting right now, many of us, and that's on my head a lot. But you're just saying, God, you don't have permission to go here. I'm not sure what it is. But the same invitation to the rich young ruler, to Matthew, to you and to me is this, Jesus saying, I, I, I would like to invite you to follow me. But if you're gonna follow me and you're gonna grow and you're gonna mature, come on now, you gotta, the, the largest force, the biggest space in your life is gonna have to be me. 
then gravity works for you. It's a lot easier to fall downhill than up. All right? He says, if you want to grow and move towards me, let's get gravity working for you. Let's put the largest, first, biggest place in your heart and in your life, your relationship with God. And he's saying, you don't have to be perfect in this moment. You just have to give me permission to go to those places. And if you'll be transparent and you'll be honest and you'll allow me to go to those places, then what was impossible for you, God, it's impossible for me to let that go. What was impossible for you won't be impossible for God. He has the power, the authority. He makes all things new. So I'm gonna pray. And listen, we raise our hands every once in a while here. It's just part of interacting. But, and we close our eyes every once in a while here. But I don't think that raising a hand or closing your eye makes you any more spiritual. They're just outward signs of an inward decision that you're making. And honestly, closing your eyes just gives you privacy so that you are not, first of all, distracted and also you feel like a sense of privacy. So I'm gonna invite you in this moment to just close your eyes for just a moment. And as I've been talking, there's been a tension that requires attention. And I, I maybe I nailed it. Maybe I, I didn't come anywhere close to it, but the Holy Spirit did the work he needs to do and has surfaced it in you. And you just want to have a simple, honest moment where you say, God, I want to give attention to this. I realize I keep being drawn to this thing. And I don't think it sits on the, on the throne of my life, but it must because it takes me away from you and I haven't given you permission to deal with it. And you just want to be honest and transparent and nobody's looking around. I want to just invite you to slip a hand up and you can put the hand right back down just as a, just as a statement to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to let that go all over this place, all over this place. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to believe some really big things because we started off in worship by just talking about the greater things that are available to us. And I really believe God wants to unlock some greater things for you. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to believe. And then we're going to go from this place and we're going to have to walk it out and live it. But Jesus, in this moment, in this tender, honest, transparent moment, I recognize that there are things in my heart that have had territory I've said yes to you as long as I could hold on to this. Or I've said maybe no to you because I didn't want to give this up. I'm not sure how to try to live in the tension of both those things. So I've been paralyzed and not moving forward. And the answer is I need to surrender that thing and trust you. And so as those hands slipped up and those, those moments, even hands that weren't raised, but you would agree with me in this moment and say, God, I need you to occupy that first place in my heart and in my life in a way that has not been the case up until this point. And I've played like it was, but on the outside, just like the rich young ruler, everything looks together. But on the inside, there's stuff in my heart that I'm holding on to that has drawn me away from this relationship with you. And holy obedience is giving you permission to have access to those things and saying, God, I want to enter in to the narrative, to the story, the larger story of what you're doing in my life, in my family's life, in this community, in the world, by walking after you. And so I surrender it, I lay it down, and even though it hurts and I'm embarrassed and it's scary, I, I'm honest with you now. I know you know the truth anyways, and so it's not like there's something going on you don't know. But I lay it down before you and I say I trust you. And I invite you into the tension to give attention. And I thank you that your word and the promise is that you make all things new. If anyone comes into Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I don't have to be who I've always been. The promise and the, 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 the incredible truth of the gospel is that you're in the make things new business. And so I get a chance to be new from this place moving forward. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I'm going to have to navigate some things. But with you, it is possible. And so I don't believe the lie that it's impossible. And I move forward with you. And I may tip and fall every once in a while, but greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. I have access to power to move forward and be free. And that's what I want for my life. And so I make that commitment to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.